Sometimes you make us especially aware of your presence with us, and we praise you. We ask this morning, Lord, that you would open us, open our hearts, open our minds, so that we're ready to receive all that you have for us, that you might receive all the glory. We pray that you would show us yourself here. Thank you. 
Please be seated. Worship is a participatory event. Sometimes it, it may feel like we, we aren't engaged in it, but we should be. And that's the goal. We sing together, we read scripture together, we give together, we pray together. And uh, this morning I want us to, uh, to offer our prayers today um, a little more corporately. To, uh, I'm going to invite you, I don't want to put any pressure on anyone, but I'm going to invite you to offer prayers. Just one sentence, two sentence prayers. Uh, if you are able, maybe stand where you are and speak those prayers for others to hear. I know it can be a really intimidating thing to do, but it can also be a really encouraging thing to do. To hear us, each other, as we pray together. So I'm going to lead us through that. We'll begin by uh, thinking about some words of praise and thanksgiving. We'll think about praying for the world, the church in the world. And offer prayers also for ourselves and the needs that are closely connected to us and to our congregation and community. So let's take just a moment to quiet our hearts, to prepare our hearts, and then uh, I want to invite you to, to offer prayers. Father, we come today having lived through a wide variety of things this week. We know that in all of these experiences, we have reason to give thanks to you, offer our praise to you. So hear us now as we offer our prayers of praise and thanksgiving. Father, thank you for a warm, safe place to gather today when we consider so many of our brothers and sisters in other places of the world. Father, we know there are many needs in the world, in our nation. We continue to pray for this country and for the countries of the world and for your church around the world. Hear our prayers.
pray, Father, for the church in Gambia, West Africa. Thank you for the uh, religious freedom that Christians are being offered. We pray that you would protect them and give them the ability to bear witness of your grace to the people around them. Father, we come today with a variety of needs in our lives and the lives of those we love and care about. Some of them are uh, needs of relate to grief, some to illness and pain, some to relationships, some things about the future, maybe they're financial, things at home, things in, in our dorm and classes. We pray, Father, that now you will hear our prayers for ourselves and for those close to us. Father, thank you for hearing our prayers today, those spoken, those unspoken. We know that you love us. We know that you are with us. We know that you're at work when we see it and when we don't. We declare our trust for you and we offer all of these prayers. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The one who teaches us the model for prayer, which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven... Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the New Testament book of Philippians. I'll be reading from Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 21. Philippians 3, 12 through 21. Hear the word of the Lord. Not that I have already obtained all this or have arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. 
All of us, then, who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that, too, God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For, as I've often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. This is the word of the Lord. I invite you to... uh... Share a word of greeting, stand, share a word of greeting with others, take a little extra time for folks you may not know and introduce yourself. Have you ever wondered why the cross is the primary symbol of the Christian faith? You probably just take it for granted because it's been the symbol for so long. But I've, I've been thinking about that lately. I mean, why is the cross the primary symbol? Why not an empty tomb? Now, granted, it's a little harder to make jewelry out of an empty tomb than a cross, but I don't know if that has a lot to do with the decision. You know, why not the empty tomb? Why not... Um, why not the Ten Commandments? Why not a shepherd or a shepherd's crook? Uh, why not a sword? Why not a Bible? You look around at the windows here and there are lots of, of, of images there that represent different things. Why not a crown? Why the cross? It's that question that's been in my mind as I'm thinking about these these six Sundays of Lent and, and thinking about the cross and, and what Scripture has to say about the cross. And, and I, I think that there is something about the cross that while it doesn't say everything there is to say about our faith, it says some very important things about our faith, central things, essential things, primary things about our faith. And I think that is Paul's point as he writes to the Philippians here in chapter 3. Paul writes to, to the church and, and he talks about that the fact that the cross is is a, a judgment on every creature. Now, we think of judgment, we we think of of um, con- condemnation. We think of judgment as the hammer being put down on us, but that's not what that. That's not what I'm talking about. When I talk about judgment, he's talking about revealing. It's talking about clarifying. It's talking about making clear. It's standing before someone and they say to you, right, wrong, guilty, innocent. And, and, and we have clarity. It, there's a revelation to it. And, and it's judging how we're doing, what we're doing, who we are. And the cross has a way of doing that. The cross has a way of sifting through all the stuff that we live with, all the masks, all the, all the barriers, all the walls. It has a way of sifting through all of that to who we really are. 
Because the truth of the matter is, if you really, if you really take time to ponder the cross and you hear the call of the cross, it, it reveals our attitudes, our perspectives, what's important to us. It's not always pleasant, but it's important. When I think about that picture, I, I think about uh, trying to, to, to find a ripe, a, a good watermelon. Have you ever do that? You know, you're at the store, and I, I know all these theories. After the first service, someone came to me and said, I can tell a good watermelon 100% of the time. I bet if, I bet if we did that a thousand times, they'd miss one. So I said, we're going to the store, and we're just going to cut. You tell me, and we're start cutting open watermelons all over the, the produce section of the store. But, they, you know, they... You know, this tapping thing and all this stuff. And I'm sure there are people who figured out that they, they're pretty good about it. But the reality is, it's all supposition one way or another. Because the only way you know whether a watermelon is, is what you want it to be, that it's, it's firm and crisp and sweet and not mealy, the only way you know for sure is if you take a knife and you cut it open. There's no other way to really know. When you open it up, then you see and the cross has a way of doing that to us. It has a way of opening us up and revealing what's inside of us. And when Paul writes to the church of Philippi, he says, there are some folks in the church, and he says this with tears in his eyes, there are some folks in the church who are enemies of the cross. He's not talking about people outside the walls of the church. He's not talking about people who have, who have rejected everything about Jesus. He's talking about people who are in the church and who, and who make the, the declaration that they follow Jesus. And he says they are enemies of the cross. People in here. What does it mean to be an enemy of the cross? Verses 2 to 11 of chapter 3, he describes one side of it. There's always two sides, and we always go, there's only really two other options, and we always go to one or the other. And the one option in 2 to 11, he talks about people who are all tied up with rules and regulations, and it's all about being legalistic. And he says, they, they have so skewed the gospel that they are enemies of the cross because they are telling you to be a follower of Jesus is to do the right things in the right way at the right time. And that's how you know. And they put all kinds of rules on us. And, and you have to do this, you have to do this, you have to do this, you have to do this. And if you don't do it, then you're not a follower of Jesus. These aren't just things, well, this is good advice that will help you. These are things that decide whether you're a follower of Jesus or not. And it's one of the most dangerous things, places to be. But the other side of it is the people who say there are no rules. Do whatever you want. Nothing holds you back. And Paul's point is, both of them are wrong because both of them have the wrong focus. Both of them are focused on us. Look at me. I do all these great things. I'm important. I'm good. Hey, don't tell me what to do. I can do whatever I want to do. There are no rules being a follower of Jesus. It's all about me. And Paul calls them enemies of the cross because there is no more dangerous place to be than to say I'm a follower of Jesus in a way that is skewed. I think, I think Paul would say, I would rather have you be an atheist than be this. Because you're giving the impression that you're good, but you're not. He'd rather have us be an agnostic than to be this. Because you do this and you give the impression you're skewing the gospel. And you're leading people away from the gospel. And that's the problem that he addresses here in, in, with the Philippians. And he's saying these are people who say they're, they embrace the cross, but they don't. They're all about self. And, in the, and when you encounter the cross, you, you cannot be about self. It cuts through that. But it's our struggle. It's our burden. And so Paul says to them, makes this audacious statement in verse 17... Follow me. You do what I do. I've read that numerous times. Now, every time I read it, I think, shouldn't he say, follow Jesus? And that's what he means. But he's saying, let me give you a living example. 
Now, that sounds a bit arrogant for Paul to say that. Hey, look at me. But he's not saying, look at me because I'm perfect. He's saying, look at me because I've made a decision to be willingly selfless about how I live my life. And the people of Philippi know that. Because he was there when the church in Philippi started. And when he was there, that, that was the, he was beaten to within, within an inch of his life. He was thrown into prison, he and Silas. And God used that miraculously. But that church in Philippi was started in the suffering of Paul. And Paul, you can hear the underlying Paul saying, I didn't have to do that. I didn't really want to do that. It wasn't my choice to say, hey, beat me to within an inch of my life and throw me in prison. But I did it. Because sometimes when you're a follower of Jesus, selflessness takes you places you might not want to go. Just like Jesus. Paul is saying, follow me because my, my life is wrapped up in being willingly selfless. For you, for others, because my focus is the cross. I think what Paul's really saying is to embrace the, the teachings of Jesus, the teachings of all of Scripture, maybe specifically the teachings of the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. Because you cannot practice, you cannot embrace the Sermon on the Mount without embracing the cross. If you don't embrace the cross, you will never embrace the Beatitudes. Why would you? Why would, if you don't embrace the cross, why would you think that, that blessing is connected to being poor in spirit? If you don't embrace the cross, why would you think that, that blessing would be connected to being merciful and being meek and humble and being persecuted and hungering for, for God to bring about His kingdom on earth as it is in heaven? If you don't embrace the cross, what possible reason would you have for turning the other cheek and going the extra mile? Makes no sense. To embrace the cross is to embrace these core teachings of Jesus and really all of Scripture, because it's, it's, it's really all there, of selflessness, of giving ourselves away. the spirit of the cross. I think that mindset starts... I think that mindset starts by, by acknowledging our sinfulness. By acknowledging who we are. Being honest about who we are. One of the problems with the people that Paul is, is concerned about, these people are enemies of the cross... They are arrogant. Both sides of it, they're arrogant. And they, there is a sense in which I've arrived. Which I think is why Paul says, I've done all these things. He gives this litany of all the ways in which he followed the law better than anybody else. And he says, but that means nothing. And Paul says, it's not as if I've already attained everything I should. It's not as if I've already arrived, because the reality is, none of us arrive. One of the great dangers of our lives is thinking we have. Because if we think we've arrived, we don't really need the cross. We're done with it. We're good. And if Paul doesn't think he's arrived... I think that speaks volumes about us. It makes me think of, of the story in John 13 of Jesus in the upper room with his disciples right before he goes to the cross that night. And it's where he shares the first, uh, the first uh, supper with them and that we practice his communion. And in the course of that night, he, he takes on a towel and a basin of water and he starts washing their feet. And he comes to Peter and Peter says, whoa, not going to wash my feet. And Jesus says, look, if you don't let me wash your feet, you don't have any place with me. And I think Jesus is saying to Peter, look, Peter, you're acting as if your feet aren't dirty. Your feet are dirty, Peter. 
And the reality is, we all walk around with dirty feet. We all walk around with, we all have struggles with, with sin. We all have struggles with, with falling short. And hopefully as we progress in our walk with Christ, it's less, but it's always there. And that reminds us we never outgrow the cross. We never get past the cross. We always need the cross. And looking at the cross reminds us of our need for Jesus. In Deuteronomy chapter 9, Moses is going over the the law, reviewing the law with the people before he dies. This is the group of Israelites who were under the age of 20 when they left Egypt. And all the other people over the age of 20 had died because they refused to trust God to go into the promised land. And so now they're all dead, and now he's talking to these people who are 60 years old and under. But they they were young when they went through those experiences and when the law was given, and so he's going back and reviewing all of it again. And he says in chapter 9, verse 7, don't forget how you rebelled against your God. That seems an odd thing to say. I think he would say, don't forget what God did for you in Egypt, and he does say that. Don't forget all the ways God has given, fed you and taken care of you. And he does say that. But he also says, don't forget your sinfulness. Because when we forget our sinfulness, we become arrogant. And, it, and it's, very, it's a very quick step from being arrogant to saying, I don't really need Jesus anymore. I'm good. And that arrogance breeds a judgmental spirit. And that arrogance breeds self-centeredness. And the cross is about the exact opposite of that. But I think the other thing Paul is saying here, too, is not just that we need to acknowledge our sin, but also we need to think, which is thinking about the past and the present. But he's also saying we need to think about the future. We live in an eager expectation that Christ is going to reappear. Verses 20 and 21, he talks about Christ reappearing. He talks about the fact that Christ is coming. And people who, are, who embrace the cross are people who live with this eager anticipation that Christ is going to come. Which is somewhat against the grain of how we tend to think of the, second, of the reappearing of Jesus. Because there is sort of ingrained in the evangelical church that we are afraid of that. When I was growing up, it was all about fear. The movies we watched, the books you read, it was all about this is going to be horrible and this is something you, ought to, you, ought to, you need to be scared of and feel anxious about because this is going to be a horrible thing. But when you read the New Testament, you find it's going to be a glorious thing. Because all the ways in which we live now, all the ways in which the world is unjust are going to be taken care of. God is going to set everything right. And the coming of Jesus is not something to fear. It's something to embrace and look forward to. Because it is in that day that the kingdom of God in Jesus is going to be fulfilled. And and the prayer that we prayed earlier, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, is going to happen. It's going to be celebration. And we eagerly anticipate that. Because on that day, what we desire, what we want, our passions, our priorities, are going to be enhanced to their fullest. And in all the ways that we want to do right, but we fall short, in that day, we're going to do right. And why would you not eagerly want that? Because... All the ways in which we are self-centered, all of our, when our passions are directed towards self-centeredness, when that's what we really deep inside want, we get the fullness of that too. And don't, people who are enemies of the cross don't want to see the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. People who are enemies of the cross don't want to see the way of the cross to be the way of life. They want the way of self to be the way of life. And to think of a day when the fulfillment in all of its glory of the way of the cross to be the way of life, when you're opposed to that, you don't want that to come. You don't want that to happen. 
So there is this sense of thinking about the future in a way that wants all that God wants to be true in us, in the world. We will never have that focus unless we are focused on the cross. It is Paul saying, I'm forgetting what's behind. I'm straining to what's ahead. And in that process of that sort of dual mindset, there is living in the moment. You get a sense from Paul that he might be saying living in the moment's a bad thing. Because living in the moment can be, is self, selfishness. But Jesus talks about living in the moment too. The difference is he's living in the moment with our focus on the cross. He's living on the moment of self-giving love and compassion and grace. He's talking about living in the moment in such a way, so focused on the cross, that we begin to look more and more like Jesus. Think like Jesus. Act like Jesus. Relate like Jesus. Want what Jesus wants. With that mindset, focused on the cross, He can start making us the people He created us to be. thinking about, I was reading a few weeks ago a book, a little booklet by a man named Ken Geyer. It's called Shaped by the Cross. And it's a, it's a series of meditations that he wrote based on his study and observation of Michelangelo's famous, uh, famous sculpture, uh, Piete. It is, it is a sculpture of Mary holding the lifeless body of Jesus. It is a beautiful, the, the artistry of it is amazing. But there is something about the way Michelangelo carved this marble that is inspiring. And the meditations are, are, are based on a lot of the observations about this, this fascinating sculpture. But he talks in this book about how when an artist looks at a big slab of marble, they get a feel, they get a sense of what they want that marble to look like. And the process of, of getting to that, what they envision in the marble, is to chip away what isn't a part of the vision. And he says that's really what Jesus is doing with us on the cross. He is chipping away everything that isn't Jesus. And if the marble could talk, if the marble could feel, it would cry out, stop doing that. That hurts. I don't want that. I want to live a painless existence. I don't want to live in an existence that, that hurts me. And we do the same thing. I don't want to live in an existence that, that looks like the cross, that follows Paul in his suffering and pain. I don't want that. I want a life of, of painlessness. And then you get to the end of the sculptures around it and this block of, of marble that, that pushed away the sculpture to do something with it looks around at all the other finished sculptures and is sad that there's still just a block of marble instead of something beautiful. And Geyer quotes a sculptor who says that a stone just wants to be a stone. But an artist wants a stone to be art. And that's what God wants for us. And that's why we focus on the cross, because God wants to make us into something beautiful. And to be made beautiful is often a painful process. But it's a process that God knows what He's doing. And God is at work, and it's hard. And I don't like it. But the way of the cross is the way of life. And I guess it comes down to what do we want to be? What do we want revealed? We want the cross to show about who we are. In many ways, it comes back to the famous statement of C.S. Lewis.
the end, there's really only two kinds of people. Those who say to God, your will be done. And those to whom God says, your will be done. How we view the cross makes all the difference. Holy Father, it's hard. We fight. We struggle. We want you to make us what you see in us. Pray this through Christ. Amen. I'd like to invite the ushers forward as we give back to God from all that He has given to each of us.
grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen.